Welcome to Tiski Sour. Tonight we're talking about the far right in the United States and the United Kingdom. We're talking about more out-of-touch Tories. They keep revealing their true colours. And we are talking about the first footballer in the men's game to come out as gay since 1990. To discuss all this and more, I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Michael. On Saturday, a teenage white supremacist opened fire on a busy supermarket in a black neighborhood of Buffalo, New York. Ten people were killed and he live-streamed footage of the atrocity on Twitch. According to Buffalo's police commissioner, he exited his vehicle. He was very heavily armed. He had tactical gear. He had a tactical helmet on. He had a camera that he was live-streaming what he was doing. Before the killings, the shooter, 18-year-old Peyton Gedro, had posted a 180-page manifesto online. In it, he made his beliefs clear. The white race in traditionally white countries is under threat, being deliberately and systematically driven to extinction as they are replaced by non-white immigrants who have more children more quickly. This is the racist great replacement theory, and it is pretty popular. This is Ben Crump, the attorney for the families of the victims. There is no question about his intentions. And just like America responds to terrorism, America needs to respond to this act of bigotry, racism, and hate as a terrorist act. You know, so often... We try to explain things away when you have a young white mass murderers kill innocent people. But there is no mistaking Attorney Urbano about his actions. In that manifesto, he made his intentions clear. He went to Topps Supermarket here in Buffalo, New York, in this predominantly African-American community with the objective to kill as many black people as he could. That was his objective. And so we need to make sure that the world knows that we have to respond to this act of terrorism. We intend to not only hold accountable this sick, depraved monster for his hatred, hateful act, but we intend to hold those responsible for the root of the hate, the people who curate the hate, the people who inspire the hate, on websites and internet services and cable news stations. Those people who radicalize these young people to go out and orchestrate heinous acts of violence, heinous acts of hate. There are plenty of those enablers and curators out there. The Great Replacement Theory originated with the French white nationalist Renaud Camus around 2010, and it has since spread across Europe and the United States. No longer a fringe view, it has become commonplace on the mainstream American right, including 
America's most watched news anchor, Tucker Carlson of Fox News. Now, I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots, mm. with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's, that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it. That's mm. true. Mm. If, if, look, mm. if this was happening in your house, if you were in sixth grade, for example, and without telling you, your, kid, your parents adopted a bunch of new siblings and gave them brand new bikes and let them stay mm. up later and help them with their homework and gave them twice the allowance that they gave you, you would say to your siblings, you know, I think we're being replaced by, by kids that our parents love more. And it would be kind of hard to argue against you because look at the evidence. So right. this matters on a bunch of different levels, but on the most basic level, it's a voting rights question. In a democracy, one person equals one vote. If you change the population, you dilute the political power of the people who live there. So every time they import a new voter, I become disenfranchised as a mm. current voter. So I don't understand why we don't understand this. I mean, everyone wants to make a racial issue out of it. Ooh, the, you know, white replacement theory. No, no, no. This is a voting rights question. I have less political power because they're importing a brand new electorate. Why should I sit back and take that? The power that I have yeah. as an American guaranteed at birth is one man, one vote, and they're diluting it. No, they're not allowed to do that. Why are we putting up with this? That type of rhetoric is a common feature of that show, as the New York Times reported at the end of April. In more than 400 shows, the newspaper analyzed Carlson evoked the idea of forced demographic change through immigration and other methods. So this is being repeated over and over again. And those views are also present in Congress. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene won her seat after promoting a video that claimed an unholy alliance of leftist capitalists and Zionist supremacists has schemed to promote immigration and miscegenation with the deliberate aim of breeding us out of existence in our own homeland. But focusing only on America can make it seem as though the Great Replacement Theory doesn't get airtime here, and it most certainly does. Douglas Murray is an associate editor at The Spectator, a magazine formerly edited by, edited by Boris Johnson, our current prime minister. Murray made his name with this book. It's called The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, Islam. And reviewing it for The Intercept, Mutaza Hussein wrote, If you're curious what the book is about, the entire argument is helpfully summed up in the title. Europe is dying, being murdered, in fact, by hordes of Muslim immigrants, aided in their task by craven liberal politicians. As Murray describes it, insufficiently harsh border policies have opened the gates to migrants bent on committing no lesser crimes than mass rape and indiscriminate murder. Meanwhile, white Europeans, exhausted by their own history and driven into moral relativism by the decline of the Christian faith, are slowly being replaced by an implacably hostile and alien population of foreigners. As well as his association with The Spectator, Murray regularly appears on the Murdoch-owned Talk TV and pens comment pieces in the Daily Mail, which makes it surprising the Mail wrote this about the shooting in Buffalo. The young man posted a 180-page manifesto online before the shooting espousing the paranoid white supremacist views that whites were being replaced in America by people of colour. Another regular at The Spectator is Lionel Shriver. Last year, she penned a piece with this headline, Would you want London to be overrun with Americans like me? And so she's trying to say, this is not about race. And then let's look at the content of that article. More than a third of UK births now involve at least one foreign-born parent. In parts of London, 80% of births are to foreign-born mothers. 
Unsurprisingly, then a third of British school children are already from ethnic minorities. In 20 years, ethnic minority children will constitute more than half the students in state schools. As of 2018, 90% of immigrants were under 45. That means the ethnic transformation of the UK, whose white population is far older, is destined rapidly to accelerate. There it is. The ethnic transformation of the UK is something to worry about, though we're never told exactly why. As well as a column in The Spectator, Shriver is regularly published in The Telegraph, and this is how they reported on Buffalo. So they said, The gunman was linked to an online racist manifesto promoting white supremacy and espousing hateful claims that white Americans were at risk of being replaced by people of colour. Now, change the location, and you get a pretty spot-on description of the Shriver passage I just read you, right? Ash, I want your comments on this. Uh, British newspapers, are they just missing what is right in front of their eyes? No, they're not missing what's right in front of their eyes. British newspapers offer an absolute masterclass in venality and hypocrisy. So it is convenient to condemn very egregious acts of violence, all while contributing to a media environment where acts of violence like that are more likely, more likely to potentially happen. They have a stochastic effect. I'd like to read you two more quotes from that Lionel Shriver piece, if that's okay. So excuse me for reading them off my phone, but I think that that really gives you an insight into just how ugly this ideology truly is. In this article, she wrote that the lineages of white Britons in their homeland commonly go back hundreds of years, yet for the country's original inhabitants to confront becoming a minority in the UK, perhaps in the 2060s, without, with any hint of mournfulness, much less consternation, is now racist and beyond the pale. I submit that prescription is socially and even biologically unnatural. She goes on to write, for Westerners to passively accept and even abet incursions by foreigners so massive that the native-born are effectively surrendering their territory without a shot being fired is biologically perverse. Now, that creates the impression of there being demographic warfare, that what's happening is that wholesale, the white British population is being replaced by immigrants, they're having babies, and therefore white British culture is obliterated. And that is a view that is shared by Douglas Murray, and he does the very same thing that Lionel Shriver does. First, he starts talking about immigration status, foreign-born nationals, and then he starts talking about those born to foreign-born nationals who, in British law, are British people. I'm British. It doesn't matter that my grandmother came here in 1953 and 1954. I'm British. But according to the likes of Douglas Murray and Lionel Shriver, because I've got immigration somewhere in my background, because I can't trace my heritage in this exact place for hundreds of years, I'm contributing to some kind of demo demographic war. And if that's the way you see it, where people living their lives, forming a community, going to school, going to work, assimilating, integrating, falling in love, having families, doing these things which make us human. If you see all of those things as a demographic war, the surrender of territory without a shot being fired, in Lionel Shriver's words, you can't be surprised when somebody does pick up a gun and decide to start firing because that is the logical endpoint of that worldview. So for newspapers who publish the likes of Douglas Murray, who in my view is an out and out racist, and you can see that because he does not consider non-white people to be British, uh, The Spectator, which publishes 
an explicit great replacement screed like that written by Lionel Shriver. These institutions are responsible for creating environments where violence is more likely. And I do not believe a single word written by a journalist who, who writes for these publications, who professes to be disgusted at what happened in Buffalo or what happened in Christchurch, where a gunman shot up a mosque, or of course going further back when Anders Breivik shot up an island full of Norwegian teenagers. These are people who are directly responsible for radicalizing these individuals and making stochastic violence all the more likely. We should make clear, obviously, it is important to say that by no means are any of us trying to suggest that these people wanted these violent acts to happen. But I think the point you're making, Ash, very articulately is that, you know, the ideology underlying this, this is made respectable in these kind of publications. And what's interesting sort of reading that Shriver piece is she sort of says, just stating these facts is very controversial. You know, always constantly trying to make this seem incredibly objective. There's no concealed agenda here. I'm just laying out the facts. But the way the facts are laid out, there is always this very unclear sort of assumption where it's sort of like, this isn't about race, it's about culture. And what we're talking about is British culture being you know, diluted, or I think that was what Carson was saying, sort of the British electorate being diluted. But then they switch between race and culture. So it's sort of, uh, the issue is this isn't race, we're not talking about race, but then the stats they use are always about ethnic minorities. And as just as you say, you're as British as me, although biologically, according to Shriver, I'm supposed to biologically relate more to the white people in the Navarra media team than the non-white people in Navarra media team. And that's just stating an objective biological fact. I mean, it is, oof. I mean, I, I don't want to say these people are Nazis. I cannot, I, I don't want to cast those kind of aspersions about particular individuals. But I mean, this is quite extreme stuff, isn't it? Well, look, the connecting of homeland to race is an explicitly Nazi ideology. Now, I'm absolutely certain that all of these individuals would say, how dare you try and connect us to the ideology of Nazism? See, this is why no one can have civilized debate anymore. But, you know, if you're using words like homeland, if you're talking about, you know, genetic belonging, going back, you know, into time immemorial, and you're saying that has to be defended against the foreign-born and the descendants of the foreign-born, well, an awful lot of Nazis are going to like what you have to say. And somebody who I think you see this with is Melanie Phillips. Now, she was quoted directly by the Atoya shooter Anders Brevik, and she gets very, very angry when you point this out, that one of her articles was lifted and quoted wholesale in a mass shooter's manifesto. And she'll say things like, well, I'm not responsible for that. How could I possibly be? I, of course, condemn this act of violence. I'm sure she does condemn the act of violence because it must be very uncomfortable knowing that you have contributed to the radicalization of a violent racist and that you might not be violent yourself, but people who are seem to like what you have to say. We will move on to our next story. We've got so much to cover this evening. The cost of living crisis is proving a disaster for people struggling to make ends meet. But it's also proving awkward for a number of Tories who just can't help but reveal themselves as heartless ghouls. So far, we've had a gallery of feckless ministers and MPs telling us we should learn to cook and budget, that we should buy non-branded food, that we should turn the heating off, and that we should get off benefits and into work. And now, we can add Home Office Minister Rachel McLean to the group of top Tories showing their true colours. Appearing on Sky News, McLean had this piece of advice. 
But over the long term, we need to have a plan to grow the economy and make sure that people are able to protect themselves better, uh, whether that is by taking on more hours or moving to a better paid job. And these are these are long term actions. But that's what we're focused on as a government. You know, some people are working three jobs. They're working um, every hour that God sends them. So, and they're still going to food banks um, to get to get food because they can't afford to feed their kids. You know, so it's not as straightforward as that, is it? No, and of course it's not. And uh, I'm not suggesting that for one moment. But we have often heard in the past when people are facing problems with their budgets that one of the obstacles, and it may not be for everybody, one of the obstacles is about being able to take on more hours or even move to a better paid job. And of course, um, it's an individual situation depending on, on that particular family's situation. But that's why the job centres exist. That's why the work coaches exist. That's why we put the support into those job centres to work with individuals on their own individual situation. So it may be right for some people. They may be able to access additional hours. But of course, it, it's, it's not going to work for people who are already uh, working in three jobs. And that's why we need to have the other measures in place, such as the um, all the help that we're putting into the schools, uh, the, the, the help with the, 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 the um, local uh, authorities, help and support that I've already mentioned. And these are where we're going to target the help where it's most needed. I know my suggestions won't help in the short term, and that's why we're introducing um, um, funding in schools and supporting local authorities. It was not very convincing, and that's for good reason. School funding has little to do with an immediate cost of living crisis, however important it might be. And even if it did, the Tories would have no reason to brag. As you can see from this graph from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, per pupil funding in the state sector fell from 2010 onwards. It's gone down from £8,000 per pupil in 2010 to £7,000 in 2021. Per pupil funding in the private sector, that's continued to increase. That means the difference in resources available to state and private pupils has doubled from £3,100 in 2010 to £6,500 now. That's what she's bragging about. The other thing McLean mentioned was support for local authorities. We can assume here she's talking about the Household Support Fund, which provided local authorities with £500 million to help Britain's poorest households. Unlike everything else the minister spoke about, this is actually a policy that is at least relevant to the cost of living crisis, but it also happens to be completely inadequate. The Observer reports that the scheme has been unavailable for months in many parts of the country because councils ran out of money in the face of surging demand. The Tories have now allotted another £500 million for the scheme, but Britain's leading anti-poverty charity says this won't be nearly enough. According to Katie Schmucker from the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, the support available from these sorts of schemes is useful for a one-off emergency if your fridge breaks and needs to be replaced, for example, but they are not suited to dealing with a persistently inadequate income. The crisis we're facing is a result of very low incomes among the least well-off, as prices are rocketing but benefits are nowhere near keeping pace. These schemes have not come close to meeting the scale of the ongoing challenge. With the cost of living crisis set to become still more acute, schemes like this can't be relied on to protect people from hardship or the harms that come from it. Only a social security system that is fit for purpose can do that. So clearly, the one thing that was relevant to the cost of living crisis by that minister is nowhere near up to the task. Finally, let's turn to the main thrust of the minister's arguments, what she was talking about originally, and that's that to escape poverty, Britain should just work more hours. Now, 
For a start, that only works if people have a decent wage, and the Tories have a very bad record on this front. From 2010 onwards, wages collapsed from £530 per week to £500 per week. From 2014, they began to recover, but they did so incredibly slowly, and thanks to high inflation this year, they will actually fall. And crucially, we might ask why, even if we had decent wages, which we don't, we would aspire to working longer hours. McLean is, of course, the Minister for Safeguarding, who in that very clip accepted that many people are working free jobs. That's not good for anyone. And it's especially terrible for parents and bad news when it comes to safeguarding kids. If your mum or dad are working free jobs, it's going to be pretty difficult for them to be looking out for you. Ash, what did you make of those comments from Rachel McLean? One, these people actually believe this kind of shit. So that's why you hear Tory MPs coming out and saying, well, these households just need to learn to budget or well, these people just need to learn how to cook or well, these people just need to be able to work more hours or move to the better paid job, which is available, but for some reason they haven't all taken already. They say these things because they believe them, because their ideology means that they have to believe it, because they are deeply invested in a worldview where it's all about get on your bike and find a job. We are individuals, we are self-sufficient, and it's not that society is structured in an unfair way, which disadvantages people, which keeps them locked in a poverty trap, which means that you've got a phenomenon in this country where most people who are in poverty are also in work. No, 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 that can't be the case. It must just be that there is some kind of individual failing or something that they don't quite realize about their situation. So I think that in some way, she's being honest. I think the second thing is that she's up there flapping her gums about absolute nonsense because the Treasury haven't put forward anything serious to deal with the cost of living crisis. As you've said, the £500 million fund is deeply inadequate and already many local authorities are saying, oh, all out of cash. Rishi Sunak, who is a real spending hawk, is not inclined to you know, make the benefit system, you know, a bit more bearable for people or do things like increase increase the minimum wage at this time. Uh, you've also got the governor of the Bank of England encouraging people to reflect before they ask for a pay rise. So there is an establishment consensus here about balancing this crisis on the backs of workers, which is why you're not hearing anything useful coming out from either the Treasury or indeed the Bank of England. And I think the third thing to realise is that MPs are a product of a shit media, quite frankly. So they can go up there and be idiotic because for the most part, it's not going to come back to bite them on the arse. Every so often a clip like this will go viral and we'll all go, oh yeah, how stupid this person is. But they've been able to climb the ranks of politics because we live in a political system which rewards mediocrity, quite frankly. Because politicians aren't really pushed on anything that significant, particularly to do with the cost of living. Because if she had been pushed on this stuff before, she would know that in order to simply make up for the cut in the universal credit uplift, somebody on minimum wage would have to work more than nine hours extra. So they'd have to find an extra working day that they weren't working already just to make up for the shortfall in their benefits. Now, if you add to that the kinds of increases in the cost of living that we're going to see, even if you did work more hours, a lot of that is going to be offset by things like losing out on your tax credits. Or if you're a parent, the exorbitant cost of childcare often means that it's not even really economical 
to work because you're having to spend that money immediately on caring for your child who would otherwise be left unattended, you know, sticking their fingers into plug sockets and whatever. It's a total lack of empathy and a lack of knowledge about people's everyday lives that politicians can get away with because outside of little windows of crisis where journalists go, oh my God, have you noticed there's an economy? They're not really asked this kind of stuff. It's more to do with the sort of internal who's up, who's down in Westminster or, you know, silly crap, which doesn't impact people's lives at all. Let's go to some super chats. Zarafrustra Cave, the Tories' whole shtick relies on there being just enough voters who don't understand poverty probably won't work this time or don't suffer from poverty. I mean, that's the, that's the whole point, right? They're appealing to those people who probably own their own homes, which means that flatlining wages haven't affected them as seriously as everyone else because that's been compensated by the price of their house going up. Oliver Kant with two pounds. We tried nothing and we've run out of ideas. I think that very much does sum up the Tories' approach to the cost of living crisis. Les Watts, thank you, Navarra Media, the usual oasis in a media desert, and Louis Miles. As a media student, I love seeing that there's somewhere I could work for who's in it for the right reasons. That's a lovely comment. Defy mainstream media. And I think that's a reference to a tagline to a fundraiser we've got running. Yes, some news about Navarra Media. Today, we launched our fundraiser. You may have seen us posting about it on social media, but in case you haven't, here's what it's all about. Mainstream media are fundamentally incapable of dealing with the most pressing issues facing society. Escalating living costs are plunging us into the greatest crisis in living memory. Wages are stagnant, workers' rights are being stripped, and the climate crisis barely makes the political agenda. Billionaire funders and advertising partnerships define what corporate media outlets do and don't cover. Their survival depends on pandering to the interests of their super-rich funders. But, thanks to our supporters, Navarra Media is free to analyse what it takes to build a society that works for us all. We're free for all to access, free from ad partnerships, free from paywalls, and free from the influence of the super-rich. Over 100,000 of you visited navarramedia.com to watch, read, and listen to our journalism in the past month. Over 200,000 of you have subscribed to Navarra Media on YouTube, and we got over two and a half million views last month alone. Just 6,000 regular supporters have made this possible. Imagine what we could do with 10,000 of you backing us. Defy the mainstream and support independent media with integrity. Join our regular supporters and help us build our supporter base to 10,000 strong. Go to navaramedia.com forward slash support and donate anything you can from just one pound a month. We can't do this without you. To state the obvious, we are running a fundraiser. We're really excited about it. As we said in that clip, we currently have 6,000 paying supporters. Other people who've made all of this growth possible. We are so, so grateful. And what we are trying to do, and we think with the following we've got at the moment, with the amount of people tuning in into this show and all of the other content that Navarra Media produces, we really want to get that up to 10,000. And we think that's going to make it possible for us to really step up our whole operation. Now, in terms of the ask, you'll know our core ask has usually been for people to donate the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. That's still very much our our core ask. But for this campaign, because we're specifically focused on getting that number of supporters up, we want to go from 6,000 to 10,000. And obviously, you know, given the context that we're all living through, we're really, really keen for you to sign up for a monthly donation with whatever you can afford. If that's one pound, three pound, five pounds, or, you know, our traditional ask, um, which is the, the hour's wage a month. So do make sure you have a think about that. And of course, that link again to support us is navaramedia.com slash support. 
Let's go straight to our next story. Martin Lewis is known as a level-headed money-saving expert, but when it came to changes to energy prices, he's lost his cool. So he tweeted, I'd like to formally apologize to the Ofgem staff for losing my rag in a background briefing just now and saying its changes are a, quote, fucking disgrace that sells consumers down the river, unquote. I should have behaved better. My eye is institutional, not individual. It was inappropriate. Now, this is, I think, what is known as a backhanded apology. Formally, he's saying sorry for having been rude to bosses at Britain's energy regulator. In practice, the real significance is to let his 1.5 million followers know what he actually thinks of Ofgem. So what is the row about? Well, Ofgem has announced it's going to review their energy price cap more frequently, moving from changes every six months to changes every three. According to Ofgem's PR, this is because the energy suppliers want to be able to pass any drops in fuel prices onto consumers as quickly as possible. In reality, it just means we'll all get price rises sooner. That's the direction of travel. But that wasn't all that annoyed the money-saving expert. He explained to James O'Brien the problem with what's called the price stabilisation fund. And then we get to the market stabilisation charge. Now, what the proposal for this charge was, that we vehemently objected to at the time, is if wholesale prices drop by more than 30%, if you were to switch to a new firm away from a price cap, so these aren't people who've agreed to lock in, these are absolutely everybody on the market, the new firm would have to pay the old supplier 75% of the hedging difference. Now, that was pretty bad. But then, today, they announced they're changing it. And I thought, good. It's no longer it has to be 30% below. It now only has to be 10% below for this to kick into effect. It's no longer they have to give them 75% of the difference. They have to give them 85% of the difference, pretty much all of it. And this was to prevent consumers from the effects of harmful competition. By harmful competition, they mean cheaper prices. To prevent consumers suffering from the ill effects of having cheaper prices. What that announcement does is effectively curtail any hope that if wholesale prices drop, firms will be able to offer cheaper deals for consumers who are able to switch. I was absolutely flabbergasted. Martin Lewis was clearly riled up there, but I have to admit, looking through this today, the policy is quite confusing. The gist of it is that Ofgem want to reduce competition in the energy market by forcing cheaper suppliers to compensate more expensive suppliers when they nick their customers. Now, this is presumably to stop more suppliers going bust, but given the whole point of having a privatised energy market was supposed to be that competition would lower prices, it's hard to see what consumers gain from any of this. Again, that's a point Lewis appears to understand well. There's two ways to run an energy market. You either embrace competition or you nationalise or you regulate prices. I'm pretty agnostic as to which way we do it. But if we're going to try and have a system as we do, which is based on competition, we've just had our regulator who's charged with helping consumers and competition effectively kibosh any hope of cheaper prices. What they haven't done is look at the standing charge that they've inflated. That means people who try and cut their bills by reducing usage only have a minimal effect. They haven't lowered the prepaid customers, the poorest in the country, their their price cap to be the same as everyone else. They haven't lowered the charges for those who pay by monthly bills, which are the most expensive and include many elderly people, to be the same as direct debit. It is an absolutely flabbergasting. Now, I was wrong 
to swear at them in a meeting and to call them a disgrace because that was unprofessional when talking with individuals. But institutionally, it is a disgrace. They are selling consumers down the river. And I call on the politicians of all parties do not let the regulator do this. Your regulator charged with protecting consumers is instituting policies in the middle of a cost of living crisis where people may well die because they cannot afford to pay their bills that effectively restrict competition and keep prices artificially high when it is unnecessary to do so. And that cannot be right. And that is the reason I lost my rag this morning. I have more reading to do, but that is my initial reading of the situation. Now, that was a pretty impassioned intervention. He's listing all the useful things a regulator could do. So that's like stopping energy companies discriminating against poorer households who can't afford direct debits and saying, instead of doing this, they just protect the big firms, the opposite of what a regulator should be doing. Ash, your take on Martin Lewis losing his rag and then going very public about it. I think that Martin Lewis has done something very, very smart. Now, this is just a theory, but Hear me out. You can let me know if this sounds plausible to you. The changes that Ofgem have introduced are very technical. Now, usually that would be relegated to, you know, a kind of little paragraph like this in, you know, some of the business sections of the newspapers. So unless you're really, you know, making it through to some of the deeper cuts of the financial times, most people wouldn't be aware of their essentially being a sort of price fixing deal by the energy regulator, which will be to the benefit of energy companies and to the detriment of consumers. Most people probably wouldn't know about that. So by kicking off the day by going, Alyssa, I'm sorry I called you a gap tooth bitch. It's not your fault. You're so gap tooth. Um, <laughs> Martin Lewis has created a newsy line and it's the kind of thing that producers for talk radio stations, for news channels would be quite interested in. It's something which would get some newspaper coverage as well, because the money-saving expert is somebody who is very genteel in certain ways, all right? They're somebody who's on the side of the consumer, not explicitly political. So by sort of packaging it as a little bit of a scandal story, whilst also apologizing so he doesn't appear as someone who is gratuitously rude or aggressive or discourteous, he's able to claim some broadcast time and some newspaper inches to take this story, which would otherwise be quite technical and quite marginal and could fly under the radar and making it something which can grab people's attention. And by the way in which he is talking about it, by drawing out the full significance of it, that because of this cost of living crisis, people being unable to heat their homes, people may well die, that there are alternatives that could have been pursued, that there's something politicians could do and they really should take action. He, I think, has played an absolute blinder in identifying a way to kind of gain the media by using his own social media and taking something which would otherwise have been, you know, potentially ignored and putting it slap bang in the middle of the news agenda. So great work, Martin Lewis. I just wanted to ask you one more question about that, Ash, because one of the bits that stood out to me in that interview, one of the less technical issues actually he was raising, he's saying the things that Ofgem could be doing is stopping the energy companies charging you a higher rate, for example, if you can't set up a direct debit. And, you know, the highest is obviously if you have to take your key to the corner shop and top that up. And I think he's suggesting that essentially the, the primary role of a 
of a regulator is to make sure that companies aren't discriminating against poor people. And what that reminded me of is that great video you made a while ago talking about how it's more expensive to be poor. So I want just to get you to sort of talk very briefly about that argument that you made then, because I think it's super relevant to this. Yeah, so this was a video I did a couple of years ago now, and it was just going through some really basic commodities that everybody needs to live and saying, why are all of these more expensive if you're poor? So energy was a big one. If you're somebody who has to top up their gas and electricity meter by the key, you're on a higher tariff. But that is also a logic which extends a lot further too. So if you're somebody who can't afford to buy a house, the money that you're paying to your landlord in rent is more quite often than you would pay for the same property in the form of a mortgage. And this is how poverty traps get set up, which is if you create a sort of two-tier system where things cost one amount if you've got a degree of capital to hand, but they're going to cost another amount and a more punishing amount if you don't have that capital to hand. You're keeping people in that position of immiseration, of vulnerability, they're exploitable within the labor market. And that is how capitalism runs. It's not that the market is an efficient distribution of resources, sometimes far from it. Sometimes markets are really inefficient at distributing resources. The market is also set up in such a way that it punishes you if you're at a disadvantage and it just keeps you on the ground by extracting more money from you because you're poor than it would if you were rich. Similar thing with housing, right? Rent is often as expensive as um, a mortgage. Let's go straight to our next story. The Labour Party has a problem. By suspending Corbyn from the whip and constantly demonising him in public, they have contributed to trashing his reputation. But people's memories aren't as short as they might hope. So they'll keep being asked why, just two years ago, they backed this guy to be Prime Minister. That question is most pointed for people who are in his shadow cabinet, like former Shadow Health Secretary Jonathan Ashworth. Two and a half years ago, you campaigned to make Jeremy Corbyn Prime Minister. Would you not like to apologise to the British people for that? Well, I remember two and a half years ago being caught out, expressing my opinions on what I thought would help happen in that in that general election. Look, he was elected leader of the Labour Party. Uh, I was offered a post to defend our National Health Service and campaign on the National Health Service. I still think it is was important to campaign on the National Health Service, but the British people made their judgment sure, in the end. Against your advice. I mean, you wanted a man to be Prime Minister who your party has now decided isn't even fit to hold the Labour whip. Yeah, I mean, doesn't that require, if not an apology, which can be overdone apologies in our political culture, but it surely requires at least an explanation and some contrition. Well, he was never going to be prime minister. The British public expressed their opinion on whether he would be you prime minister. Well, that at the time. Well, I did actually. That was the, that was the problem. I got in private. <laughs> I was on. I remember but being in on, many newspapers. You would come on to have, shows like have, this have and, and argue for a Corbyn premiership. I argued for a Labour government to invest in the National yeah, but Health that was, Service. Jeremy Corbyn was your leader. I mean, the reason, look, it's historic. I understand yeah. that. But it is some resonance because it is to do with trust. You, you, you know, Boris Johnson clearly has huge trust problems. Yeah. But if you campaign for Jeremy Corbyn and it's clear you didn't really mean it, that's a trust issue. And I but, would ask you just to look at this. If Mr. Corbyn had become prime minister, which you campaigned for, you really think that Britain would have rallied the West against Russia in Ukraine, been in the vanguard of arming Ukraine, would have encouraged Sweden and Finland to join NATO? Do you think any of that would have been done by Britain? 
under Mr Corbyn. But Jeremy Corbyn wasn't going to be Prime Minister. The polls showed that consistently. And I wanted to help Labour MPs get across the line and not lose their seats. And sadly, many of them lost their seats in that general election. We went down to our worst defeat since the 1930s. Many good people lost their seats who didn't deserve to lose their seats in that general election. Jonathan Ashworth there was referring to a leaked tape published by right-wing website Guido Fawkes in 2019. Ashworth had told a Tory candidate that Labour wouldn't win that election, so he needn't worry what Corbyn would be like as Prime Minister. This is what Ashworth said at the time after that tape was leaked. If you leak it uh, uh, to Guido Fawkes, of course it looks, makes me look like a right plonker. But it's not what I mean when I'm winding up a, I'm winding up a friend trying to sort of, you know, I'm trying to sort of, you know, pull his leg a bit, uh, you know, as it were. So hang on, let's be clear. When you said the party effed it up when they failed to get rid of Corbyn, you didn't mean that either. No, I'm pulling his leg because he's okay. saying stuff to me, saying, why don't you get rid of him? And do, you I think say, Jeremy you know, do you think Jeremy Corbyn is a threat to national security? No, of course I don't. Of course I don't. And he makes do this ridiculous well? comment to me. About, I mean, I can't tell what you mean and don't mean anymore. Well, I'm joshing around with somebody who I thought was an old friend who's now leaked it to Guido Fox, an old friend who I, um, as I say, have known for many years. He's a Tory and we've always had a bit of banter together. I never expect him to do it. But I, I uh, you know, I'm winding him up. I'm teasing him. He's been winding me up saying, oh, everyone at CCHQ thinks it's going to be really close. It's going to be Corbyn's going to win and all this sort of stuff. And we're joshing around with each okay. other. But he's, ob he's obviously is in a panic. Because he thinks the Labour Party is going to win, which is why he's, he's leaked our jokey conversation. What a pathetic, dishonest man he is. Ash, your comments on Jonathan Ashworth. What did I just say about this political system rewarding mediocrity? I mean, do you look at Jonathan Ashworth and you go, well, there's a stellar communicator. There's a real political talent. There is somebody with absolutely ruthless clarity, you know, strategic genius. No, you don't say any of those things. But even if you're not especially talented, the one thing that you can be is honest. All right. That's easy. That's something everyone can do. You know, the difference between the truth and a lie. And he can't even do that. And hearing him talk to Andrew Neil, to be honest, I don't think either one of them come out particularly well, because I think if you're in this moment, 2022, there's a cost of living crisis. It's only going to get worse. And you're talking about Jeremy Corbyn in 2019. I don't think that you're either a serious political journalist and you're also not a serious politician if this is what you're choosing to focus on. But leaving that aside for a second, this expectation that you should have to apologize for wanting Jeremy Corbyn to become prime minister, or in Jonathan Ashworth's case, not wanting him to become prime minister, but campaigning as part of the same party in a general election. That's part of how the media stacks the deck against the left, because you're not allowed to say, no, actually, like that was a really horrible election result. Yes, there's lots to learn from, but I stand by the things that we said we thought were good for the country. We stand by that manifesto because I stood in that manifesto. I stand by that leader who sure couldn't get the job done. He couldn't do it. But, you know, he was a man who was honest and he had integrity and he genuinely wanted the best for people. That is something that Jonathan Ashworth could say. But he melted in the face of, you know, that bit of media pressure, which, yeah, it's evidence of, of, of a biased media environment. But a man with backbone would be able to stand up to it. Clearly, Jonathan Ashworth is not that man. 
I mean, it's not just that interview, is it? That the whole strategy of the Labour Party, which I think is an, is a flawed one, is to not in any way defend Jeremy Corbyn as you know someone who would have been a decent prime minister who led their party just two and a half years ago, and who they tried to make prime minister to say, yes, we disagreed, but he would have been far better than Boris Johnson, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? But what they have done is they have done more than more really than the media over the past two and a half years to demonise that man. So they've said he's too racist to be in the Labour Party. He hates British national security too much that we can't let him back in. He is a catastrophe of a human being. This is what we've been hearing from Labour politicians. And I mean, I know you're saying Andrew Neil should focus on different things, but we are in a moment where, you know, honesty does matter in politics. If you're a journalist, you can say, look, the Labour Party, are, are they're the ones talking about honesty all the time when it comes to Boris Johnson. And there is a clear contradiction in what they have been telling us, which is they've been saying, this guy is too racist, too disgusting to be in your party. But two and a half years ago, you were actively telling people to vote for him. And into, I just think Jonathan Ashworth, oh, I've got a story actually about Jonathan Ashworth and this situation. Because after that happened, after that leak happened in, in Guido Forks, I got a call from Jonathan Ashworth. And it was quite strange. You know, he called me on my mobile because I don't think we'd ever really had a conversation before, maybe like bumped into each other once at Labour Party conference. And he would say, oh, you know, I'm so humiliated. I'm so sorry. I feel so terrible about this, blah, blah, you know, really going for it. And I was a bit like, okay, you know, whatever. We were very, I was like, you know, I was very unimpressed, but whatever. And I think the only explanation I can have of why he did that is he thought that maybe he was going to go for leader or deputy leader. And he thought that Navarro Media might have some sort of sway over that result. And so he, he was like, oh, my cover has been blown. He's just so clearly a careerist that doesn't really care about what he's talking about. But he was happy to tell the public one thing in 2019, tell the public a completely different thing in, in 2022. And everyone is left none the wiser what he actually believes, other than that he wants to advance his own career. But you're making a really good point about honesty here. In some ways, it's a mirror image of what's going on in the Conservative Party. Because Boris Johnson is a pathological liar, all right? He wouldn't know the truth if he woke up in bed with it. And that's something which then filters down through his ministers and the rest of his party, they lie as much as they feel they can get away with. And that is something which you see time and time again. You know, that's the kind of thing which, you know, sends the liberal centre going completely spare. You've got your Peter Stefanovic videos, you've got your, you know, James O'Brien. That's the sort of bread and butter of liberal opposition to the Conservative Party. But if you want to look at Keir Starmer, he's somebody who was elected on a particular policy platform. And it wasn't something which was just tacitly understood. It was something which he wrote down and he even called them pledges, right? A pledge is a promise. A pledge is a vow. And he said, this is what I'm going to go for. He presented an image of himself as a campaigning human rights lawyer, someone who's on the side of civil liberties, the rights of protesters, someone who stands with trade unions. You know, he's standing up in the hustings saying, you know, I'm not going to give an interview to the sun. And then all of those things within the first year of his leadership are booted into Rosie. And when he's confronted on it, goes, well, sure, I'll say anything to get elected. I'll break any promise. So you've got this kind of trickle down dishonesty, where if that's the tone which is set by the leader, which is you say whatever you want to a particular audience, just to sort of get through that one, whether it's a, a media interaction, or whether it's a conversation with a politician, or whether it's you know, a conversation with the key stakeholder. You say whatever's necessary and then you just move on to the next thing. Well, if your leader's doing that, why wouldn't you have someone like Jonathan Ashworth doing the exact same thing? It's trickle-down dishonesty. You know, wealth doesn't trickle down, but bad habits do. We are moving on to our final story where we will cover that and other political, well, other football news, actually. I'm so used to saying political news. It's actually going to be football news next time. Let's go straight on to that now. 
At this weekend's FA Cup final, Liverpool fans caused controversy when they booed the national anthem. Liverpool fans also booed Prince William. February. The FA presentation party is led by the president of the Football Association, His Royal Highness the Duke of Cambridge. For those very, very hurtful boos, Liverpool fans received condemnation from across the political spectrum. Speaker of the House, Lindsay Hoyle, said, I utterly condemn any fans who booed Prince William at Wembley. The FA Cup final should be an occasion when we come together as a country. It should not be ruined by a minority of fans' totally shameful behaviour. In this year of all years, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, this is dreadful. How could they, in her special year? Outrageous. And her theme tune. They booed her theme tune. Leader of the Lib Dems, Ed Davies, said this, We have the most wonderful monarch, and those fans who booed do not represent their clubs or our country. Now, what Ed Davey knows about Liverpool fans, I don't know, but he seems to think he has the right to speak for them. Former Tory culture and sports minister Karen Bradley uh, had the most extreme response. It is utterly unacceptable and disgraceful that fans booed Prince William. I would urge the FA to take all necessary action and pursue those responsible. No more football matches for you bastards booing the Royals. Never again. Liverpool's manager, Jurgen Klopp, was more understanding. Yeah, of course I had thoughts, but I think in these situations, Sam, it's always the best to ask the question, why does it happen? So I know our people that well that they wouldn't do if there's no reason for it. And I'm not here, maybe not long enough, for sure not long enough to understand the reason for it. It's for sure something historical. And that's that's probably a question you can answer much better than I could ever. Um, these are wonderful... The, the, our, our fans, and I know a few fans from other clubs see this slightly different, um, but um, our, the majority of our supporters are wonderful people, really um, smart and all these kind of things, understand, go through lows, go through highs, suffer together, all these kind of things. They wouldn't do it if there would not be a reason. That's what I, that's what I know. Um, and maybe we should ask this question. Jurgen Klopp putting all of our elected politicians to shame. Ash, your take on Liverpool fans booing the national anthem? Well, look, it's kind of part of the club identity in the sense that Liverpool as a city and Liverpool as a club hasn't been well treated by the establishment, right? So going from the managed decline era to everything that happened in terms of the Hillsborough disaster and the media coverage of it, there are lots of reasons for people who feel an affinity for the club and for the city to feel a very deep sense of alienation and separateness from the rest of the country, from England and the English establishment and elite. And that's not just something which is born out of the sort of traumatic events that I've just named, but it's also a source of pride. So one of the things that I think could probably bring the sort of like North London 
beef to an end is the fact that so many people in Liverpool are proud of saying Scouse, not English. And I'm like, yeah, London, not English. And it's a really strong sense of identity and it is wrapped up in the club identity. And Jurgen Klopp is right not to distance himself from it. And one of the things which I find really annoying about like all the politicians and the pundits weighing in and, you know, clutching their pearls is who does this harm? I mean, who does this harm? It's not like booing players taking the knee, which is a symbol of anti-racist solidarity. It's not like racist chanting or monkey noises or throwing bananas. Like being a monarch is not a protected characteristic. That's not what the M in BAME stands for. You know, it's something which is, I think, as much a part of British culture expressing hostility to the royal family as it is to celebrate it. So just this like pearl clutching and, you know, Lindsay Hoyle coming out and condemning it. I'm just like, oh my God, get a grip. You know, why would you want to sanitize terrorist culture? And specifically, why would you want to make club culture subordinate to national culture? That kind of defeats the point of club football. And what's more, all of you people are nerds. It's just so can you imagine? I mean, obviously, I don't go to many football matches anyway, but I'm sort of just imagining going to like an FA Cup final and everyone being Ed Davey, it being just like the most boring <laughs> hour, 45 minutes of your life. Let's talk briefly about the big football story from today. So 17-year-old Jake Daniels has come out as the first openly gay footballer in the men's leagues since Justin Fashion, who did in 1990. Now, obviously, that's an enormous amount of time. It's been 32 years. And I think probably one of the reasons why it's been such a long time is because the Justin Fashion News story ended really, really tragically. Could I get you to talk about what today's coming out means and yeah, how it connects to one of the darkest stories really in sort of modern British football? It's hugely meaningful. There hasn't been an out gay player since Justin Fashion. You did have a Leeds United player who came out after he retired and then he joined another team and played for a bit more and then he retired again. But the idea that you would do what what this young man has done, which is to come out really at the beginning of your playing career where you still have, you know, your whole career in front of you for a club, maybe even, you know, a national call up as well. It really is truly courageous because you would think that you'd have some out footballers just statistically. But I think that the Justin Fashion News story does cast a really long shadow because what happened in the 1990s was that Justin Fashionu was subject to a tabloid whisper campaign before he came out. And it was something which was sort of known and he was kind of, I guess, always on the edge of being outed. And in the end, he gave an exclusive to the Sun newspaper where he came out, but also I think due to pressure from the paper itself, spiced it up with a lot of titillating details, including, you know, I had sex with a married Tory MP and things of that nature. What happened after that was that his professional career was essentially killed. Despite being kind of in the prime of his life, in the prime of his playing career, he never got another full-time contract. He moved to the States. There was an allegation of sexual assault made against him. He came back to this country and he committed suicide. He committed suicide having been denounced roundly by other people in football. He was treated absolutely atrociously by someone who's considered a socialist football hero, Brian Clough. He was treated really, really badly by him. He was denounced by his own brother and he died a very, very lonely death. And I think that that's something which has cast a very long shadow over football because it has told 
footballers what the costs are that if you are gay you have to keep it a secret because if you come out you can't expect a playing career after that that if accusations are made against you there won't be that kind of you know wall of silence that you see around other players who have been accused of assaulting um, girls and you will be hounded by the tabloids there very much is a sort of two-tier way of being treated now of course I'm not saying that anyone who's accused of assault should be defended by their club but it's just very much there is an obvious double standard here in terms of how Justin Fashionu was treated and how you know others including the present players who have only just been reluctantly suspended from you know Manchester United Manchester City with a string of allegations in their wake it shows you that there are some people who clubs are willing to defend and there are some people who clubs aren't willing to defend Justin Fashionu being one of them it is remarkable how long a period of time it has been I suppose the upside of that is I think we can be pretty safe to assume that a lot has changed I mean obviously it's incredibly brave what this guy has done but I think you know lots of clubs are coming out very very supportive of this I would imagine that this guy is going to get, you know, quite a lot of support from from fans because I do think that attitudes to homosexuality have changed massively since 1990. But obviously, we'll we'll have to wait and see. And solidarity for doing something so brave, Louis Burkello from the Republic of Ireland. Hope someday there'll be a British Republic. Exactly. I was going to say, but then who would we boo at sports events? But in politicians like George Osborne at the Paralympics. Liberals really sort of idolised 2012 as sort of like when politics was perfect and we had that opening ceremony. The best thing about 2012 was George Osborne getting that massive boo at the Paralympics. That was strong. I was there. I was booing. Wow. You were part of British political history, Ash. I was part of British political history. I didn't want to go to the Olympics or the Paralympics. My sister like really sweetly like got us tickets to go see the athletics. And I was like, I've got no interest in athletics whatsoever like I only really like gymnastics in the Olympics I'm just like yes I like it when you're all doing the flips but athletics I wasn't so keen on and then George Osborne comes out and he's getting booed by everyone I'm booing along and I'm just like this is great like I thought the crowd should have gotten a gold medal oh don't say you were gonna you were booing along I was gonna start the meme of Ash Sarkar through the first boo at the 2012 Paralympics but (laughs) there there, there we are Um, no I, I, I I, I sort of instinctively booed, but so so did many other people. I can't claim to be yeah. first, but I would <laughs> claim to be one of the most enthusiastic. <laughs> okay, that's good enough for me. Ash, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you all so much for watching. Going to give one more shout out to our fundraiser. We're really excited about it. A lot of work's gone into it. We really, really want to get our supporter base up to 10,000 just because we're confident we can do so much more with that. And we've been sort of delighted at the, the amount that our reach has grown over the past months and years. And we feel like if we, if we start to, to get all of our new subscribers becoming, converting them into supporters, then we can really make leaps and bounds as an organization. As we always say, everything we do is completely dependent on you. So thank you so much if you are already a supporter. And if not, as I say, please do consider becoming one at navaramedia.com forward slash support. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>